But if you will, take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, we will um, back up and read a couple of verses from chapter 7 as we introduce the message today. Our English Bibles are divided into chapters that were given by men who were not necessarily inspired by God, but they tried to help us by breaking up huge portions of literature in the easier ways of reading it and by themes and by different subjects. And, and oftentimes they have really hard choices uh, or they had really hard choices to make in order to divide it that way. And sometimes it breaks up our train of thought but I'm sure that there are quite a few of us who don't spend our Bible reading going all the way through the book from one, the first verse all the way to the end, unless it's maybe first or second or third John, or maybe the book of Habakkuk, uh, that maybe you could do that in a short amount of time. But Romans chapter 8 is positioned at a spot that it's, it's really the apex of the book of Romans. Uh, as I was... As, and, and as I participate and help with the preaching schedule, particularly for Tim, Richard, and myself, as we're going through the book of Romans, I play a little bit of a part in trying to plan that out. And when I and it looked as if Tim was going to fall short of getting into chapter 8 and that the, me being the next one to, to preach in the series would be in chapter 8, I could not tell you that I was just a little bit excited about that. Uh, our care group that met this past Tuesday night in, in Sister Betsy's home uh, got just a little sample and maybe got a little bored of me talking just about how excited I was about Romans chapter 8. And if you're not, as a believer, very familiar with the message of Romans chapter 8, how dare you? <laughs> it's just one of those things that you should be ashamed of yourself. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ and have trusted him in salvation, for any length of time at all, or is not at least somewhat familiar with the message of Romans chapter 8, then I hope today will be the start of a, a wonderful new experience for you, as this hopefully will carry you. I cannot think in the whole New Testament of a more encouraging chapter than Romans chapter 8. Now, you have to go through Romans chapters 1 through 7 to understand what Romans chapter 8 is about. You need to go through Romans chapter 9 through Romans chapter 16 to understand the full capacity of what Paul is speaking about. But there is so much value in Romans chapter 8 to the believer. And I hope that you will share with me that great excitement about this particular chapter. This excitement goes back one of the first sermons that I've ever preached as a Bible college student, my grandmother and my mother uh, were raised in a Methodist church. And uh, I went to a non-Methodist Bible college, a very Baptist Bible college. But yet because of the familial relationship, they were having youth Sunday. And I was a young Bible college student, so they thought it would be a, hey, a great idea. Let's have Sister Ollie's grandson, who's a Bible college student, come and preach on youth Sunday. I preached from Romans chapter 8, and uh, certainly uh, I'm nowhere near a great preacher now, and you can only imagine how much worse I was back then some 30-some years ago. But I remember having individuals from the congregation going through, and it wasn't, had nothing to do with what I had, how I said or, or me being the preacher, but the fact that, man, that was a great message. We need to hear more 
sermons like that. Now, as an arrogant young Bible college student thinking, well, if you went to another church, that might help. But uh, I try to keep the Methodist jokes to a minimum but because I have some great friends of mine who are Methodist. As a matter of fact, one of my friends when I was pastoring in Denton, uh, one of the better friends that I had was a, was a Methodist pastor, and we had wonderful conversations, great fellowship together. But that's just a commentary, not just on the Methodist church, but in churches worldwide. That there should not be some surprise or alarming nature to hearing a message when it comes from Romans chapter 8. Now, I'll go ahead and give you the, uh, you know, spoiler alert here. I'm not going to preach the whole chapter, Romans chapter 8. I thought since this was the last time I'm preaching the year 2019 that maybe I should and just take up all the time that I'm not going to get the rest of the year. But that wouldn't be very good for Tim and Richard. But Romans chapter 8 follows nearly seven full chapters of legal speech. Paul is trying to present a forensic argument. First, about the holiness of God, the sinfulness of man, and the consequential wrath that rests upon this sinful creature in light of a holy, righteous God. And then secondly, he goes on to talk about how the religious pursuits, particularly of Judaism, leaves one wanting. It's not sufficient. Just as it was not sufficient for Abraham to simply do things, but that Abraham did things according to the faith that he had in his God. And it wasn't so much about having the law because in Romans chapter 2, Paul makes it really clear whether you have the law or not, whether you're a Jew or not, you are facing the wrath of God as a sinner. We have all suppressed the righteousness of God in our unrighteousness. And we are all subject to this wrath. But Paul makes another legal argument that we are declared righteous, not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus Christ has done. And in chapter 5, Paul unfolds some glorious truths about the sufficiency of the atoning work of Jesus Christ to make atonement for our sin as sinners apart from any work of ourselves. Completely by the grace of God through faith being applied to our lives by God. We have peace with Him. But then he throws a wrench into the whole thing as we've been talking about the last few sermons in Romans chapter 6 and 7. But well, if this is the case, then why do I struggle so much? Why do I fight this, this tendency to do things that I don't want to do and, and can't seem to do the things that I want to do? And Tim did an incredible job. I can't, I can't remember ever hearing a better message on Romans chapter 7 than what he preached last time. And if you weren't here to hear it, I encourage you to go to our website and listen as he expounded on the Scriptures in Paul's teaching about the struggle that goes on within ourselves as sinners. This indwelling nature of sin that even as a believer we struggle with and we will continue to struggle with until Jesus Christ comes back. 
But as we see, if you look in your scriptures there, in Romans chapter 7, verse 24, the conclusion that Paul comes to, wretched man that I am, there's no... You know, thinking about the, the man that he was before he came to know Christ as Savior, he's saying, oh, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind. But with my flesh... I've served the law, the law of sin. And then we come to Romans chapter 8, verse 1, which is not just simply a conclusion of what Paul is speaking about in here in chapter 7, but he's really sort of summing up everything that we've been learning about in chapters 1 all the way through chapter 7, in which he says, there is therefore... Now, no condemnation. For who? For those who are in Christ Jesus. There is therefore, based on everything that Paul has been reasoning up all the way until this point, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit, the Spirit of life, has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you that you have been so merciful even to allow us to see these words. You preserved these words for nearly 2,000 years so that eyes can behold the wondrous mystery of the grace of God. You've allowed us, particularly in the culture in which we live, in the world in which we live, in the time in which we live, to have access to a glorious gospel to just simply know that those who are in Christ Jesus are not under condemnation now. Thank you. Father, I ask for your help now as we consider this wonderful truth, as we reflect upon the, the substance that has made this therefore meaningful, and as we consider that which we are going to be called to do as a result throughout the rest of this letter, Lord, help us to understand. Lord, should there be someone sitting in this room today, if there's someone at some point in time listening to the sound of my voice that has yet to find themselves in Christ, would you be kind to save them? Would you be merciful to open their eyes 
so that they could see their need for a Savior and to see that the only sufficient Savior is indeed Jesus Christ. And that the Spirit of life would free them from the law of sin and death. And for those of us who were redeemed, for those of us who have placed our faith in Christ according to your grace extended to us, may we rejoice. May the songs that we've sang this morning not be sufficient to express the gratitude and the jubilance that's in our soul for what Christ has accomplished for us. Help us, Lord, as we study your word. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. We have a holy God, God who is deserving of our obedience and a God who is rightfully subjecting his creation to judgment because of our failure to do so is Paul's initial statement in Romans. As we've already talked about, he builds his argument talking about how our works of the law, how our fleshly Fulfillment is ineffective in producing any sort of reconciliation between God and ourselves. But yet Jesus Christ has done so. And it's in Christ alone that we stand, as we sang about. And the inadequacy of religion and religion in and of itself is made very clear by Paul. If we're here this morning just simply sitting in a pew thinking that we're somehow fulfilling some measure of attainment, some standard of righteousness so that God will look and say, hey, well, at least he went to church today or at least she sang a song today. If we're here under that guise of finding favor with God, we are so desperately deceived and distracted from the truth. Paul has made it very clear that that is not the case. It is through Christ alone. But what then do we do with the struggle of our sin? What then do we do with this body of death? Who will deliver me from that? Well, it's the same Savior that delivers us from eternal destruction and damnation. The condemnation that rests over the sinner that has been removed because of Christ's adequate work on the cross and the power that raised from, from the dead is the same power that will help us and assist us and strengthen us and make us successful in living the holy, righteous life in Christ going forward. Jesus Christ our Lord is the one who will deliver me from this body of death. But he makes this statement in verse 25, verse, or chapter 7, verse 25. He says, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Now I'm not going to re-preach Tim's message from last time. But we need to understand that there is a distinction between the mind and, and the flesh that Paul is speaking about. Now, let's be careful that we don't do as the secular world does. Uh, you may have heard of Plato, and uh, Plato, who was a Greek philosopher, suggested that the body was the prison 
for the soul. And therefore the body was bad. It was the thing that was keeping our soul from truly living freely and experiencing life freely. But it was, but it was imprisoned in this body. The, the mystical oriental religions teach that the body itself is bad. It's, it's keeping you from living out your full potential. It limits you. And that influence, that type of thinking influenced the early church. So much so that there were many believers early on, and even there's still some today, that believe in order for me to be a truly human or a truly holy person, I have to, to get rid of this flesh. I have to, 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 to treat it poorly. I have to beat myself. There were monks that in the early centuries of the church that would seclude themselves in the mountains and they would literally beat their bodies because the flesh was bad. We need to understand the flesh in and of itself isn't bad. For Jesus Christ himself, John chapter 1 tells us that Jesus Christ took upon himself flesh. We beheld his glory, full of grace and truth. But, but Jesus Christ, when he came... He took on flesh, so flesh in and of itself is not bad. But we need to understand that in the New Testament, Paul and other New Testament writers will use the idea of the flesh to characterize the old man. And like he does here in Romans chapter 7, verse 25, he speaks about, uh, I serve God with my mind as a way to describe the new man. Now, he uses those terms exclusively. If you look in Colossians chapter 3, he talks specifically about the new man and the old man. We put on the new man. We put off the old man. So we have this idea that it's not so much a, a, a fight between the physical and the flesh and my soul, but understanding it in terms that, well, my flesh is the easiest way to represent my old man because, well, let's... As Paul will go on to say in Romans chapter 8, the flesh will be glorified one day. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, talk, not, not chapter 13, uh, talks about the resurrection. About the being planted, you know, the seed has to die. The body has to be buried so that it can come forth in life. So there is a glorification that will happen Amen. to this flesh. But as we see it today, the flesh is sort of typical of the old man. And so as we go forward in thinking about that he serves the law of God with my mind, but with the flesh I serve the law, we just want to make sure we don't make an unwise distinction as we consider the, the comparison. Paul uses the flesh to speak about the old man, that fallen nature, the corruptness. John chapter 6, verse 61 uh, Jesus has just told those who were listening to him that if you want to be my disciple, if you want to follow after me, uh, then you're going to need to eat my flesh and you're going to drink my blood. <laughs> now that's enough to get anybody's attention right there. Whoa, hey, uh, the cannibalism isn't you know, what I signed up for here. And Jesus, having said that in verse 61, John says, Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling, about Jesus saying that they must eat his flesh and drink his blood, said to them, do you take offense to this? And many of us would have been like disciples and said, I do. I, I'm not sure I'm, I'm, I'm good with that. But Jesus said, then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? In other words, he's saying, 
What if you were to see me where I came from? If you, if you have to have spiritual eyes to understand what I mean by flesh and blood. It's not literally taking that. It's figuratively speaking that you have to consume me. Just as you have to believe that Jesus Christ didn't originate on the earth. He, originate, he didn't originate anywhere. He's eternally existent. But He came from heaven. That was one of the biggest things that the Jewish people had problems believing about Jesus Christ, that He came from the Father. That was the reason why they wanted to put Him to death. That was blasphemy to say that you came from God. But it takes spiritual eyes to see that. And He goes on to say in verse 63, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. If in our old nature we're giving a statement like you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood in order to be a follower of Jesus Christ, if we're doing that with the old man, we're never going to get what he's saying. The words that I've spoken to you, Jesus says, are spirit and life. Because Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but in himself is judged by no one. For who has understand for who has understood the mind of Christ of the Lord so as to instruct him? But he says, but we, as regenerate, saved, born again children of God, we have the mind of Christ. We get it. The unbeliever doesn't get it. It takes spiritual vision to see the difference between the law that God has provided as a, in thinking that it's somehow a means of salvation and the law of life that the Spirit gives. As we've been talking about throughout the book of Romans, the law wasn't given to save us. The law was given to reveal to us our sinfulness. But yet, when we have our eyes open to the truth by the Spirit of God, we then see that with our mind, we serve the law of God. Not so much the Mosaic law, not so much the Ten Commandments, but generally speaking, the principle of following after God's commandments, God's ways. We do that with the mind because now we have the mind of Christ. The unbeliever can't even desire to do the right thing. As Tim was talking about last time, that was one reason why chapter 7, some people would attribute that to people who aren't saved to begin with. The argument is so much better for the fact that he's talking about a believer there because Paul says, that which I desire to do, I don't do. An unbeliever doesn't want to do the things of God. An unbeliever has no taste for heaven's joys. It's only the believer. But there's a struggle. There's a struggle with the law of sin. Not necessarily just with our flesh, but it is in our flesh that the old man still has sway. And as we go through that struggle, the Holy Spirit, I believe, is so gracious to give us a word that will help us like no other word will. When we struggle in our fallenness, when we struggle with our weaknesses, when we struggle with the circumstances that we face every day, when we struggle with the people that irritate the stew out of us, when we are in the situations we can't control and manipulate and make the way we want them to be, when we struggle with the old man, it is so 
wonderful to know that in spite of all of that struggle, that, that now, in the midst of that struggle, there is no condemnation. How many times as a believer have you fallen into sin? How many times have you struggled and you realized your weakness and you started to doubt? Right? So say, oh no, I can't believe believer. I said that to somebody, or I went there again, or I did it over again. I knew I was making a mistake and I did it. I can't be a believer. That's natural, right? Now, to some people that continue to live a lifestyle like that, need to really be concerned. Because there is condemnation awaiting for those who aren't believers. There's condemnation that have not yet come to the point like Isaiah says, woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. Or like Peter in Luke chapter 5, where when he sees Jesus' miraculous power, he kneels down and says, depart depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. Or even Paul, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? It's not that it's not a reality that there's condemnation. But if we are in Christ Jesus, Amidst this struggle as to who will deliver me from this wretched man that I am, to know there's now no condemnation resting over me. Now we could take that to the extreme and say, well, it doesn't matter what I do because there's no condemnation resting over me. Well, that's not sounding like somebody who's in Christ. That's not sounding like somebody who says, I wish that I could do the right thing, but for some reason I don't. I don't want to do the wrong things, but for some reason I do. That doesn't sound like somebody's struggling. That sounds like somebody looking for a license. I'm afraid that the church is full of too many of those people who they feel good. They hear, oh, there's no condemnation. Oh, great. I get to do whatever I want to. Now, that's not what Paul says. As a matter of fact, Paul goes on to say, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free from doing that stuff. Has set me free from what the flesh wants to do. So what it is that Paul gives us, the clear point that he makes in the midst of our struggle of sin is that there is no condemnation. The declaration is very clear. No condemnation. And we say, is this too good to be true? Did God just drop the charges? Did he forget that I sinned? Did he forget that I'm a wretched man? Did he lower his standard? Did he say, well, you know what? I started out wishing people could be perfect, but I realized they can't. So let me just kind of lower it a little bit. Maybe some people will achieve it. Or did God just simply sweep our sin under the rug? Is, are these or any other reasons the grounds for Paul saying that there is now no condemnation? You have to understand for whom this applies, right? For those who are in Christ Jesus. Make no mistake, this is not universalism. This is a specific application to those who are in Christ. I can't think of much better ways to express that than in the psalm that we were singing just earlier, in Christ alone. That song unfolds so many different ways in which we are in Christ. But songs like that are of no use to us if they're not established firmly upon scriptural truth, correct? 
For we have been united with him. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You want to know what it means to be in Christ Jesus? It means to be dead to yourself. Jesus said, if any man wants to follow after me, he needs to deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. In other words, you leave you back, back there. And you follow after Christ by faith. You consider yourself, when you see Christ hanging on a cross, past tense, because he's not still there, we don't bring him back when we celebrate what would some people call the Mass. He's already died. And when we look past tense to see Jesus Christ on a cross dying for our sins, and we are see, see ourselves up there with him, that's in Christ Jesus. In order for us to see ourselves up there in our sin, we need to understand that we are sinners. We need to see ourselves as rebellion against God. We need to see ourselves at odds, at enmity against God. And we need to repent. We need to come to a point in our life where we see ourselves for who we are in light of God's Word, not in our poor self-image or because somebody made me feel bad or somebody bullied me, but because I realize I'm convicted that I and I alone have offended God, a holy righteous God, and I want to repent. I turn from that. If that's not our experience, we're still under the condemnation of God. If we haven't turned from our sinfulness, if we haven't turned from who we are in Christ, if we have not crucified ourselves with Christ on the cross, not paying for our sins, but identifying with what He was doing for us, the condemnation still is there. But for those who are in Christ Jesus, those who see themselves united with Him in a death like His, are considered dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus, according to Romans chapter 6, verses 5 and 11. Now, how does this happen? Romans chapter 8 tells us in verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin. The Spirit. Before we go any further, I'd like for you to just take your Bible and turn back to Romans chapter 1. We made a point about this, about the Christology of Christ. But I want you to see that Romans is a wonderful place for us to understand the doctrine of the Trinity. Paul says as he's greeting the church in Romans chapter 1, he says he's a bondservant, or literally he's a slave of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he, which God, promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was born of, the, of, of a descendant of David according to, the son of, according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. So there in the first four verses, we have an introduction that includes the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He goes on to say, through whom... Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you also are called of Jesus Christ. So we see that the Father sent the Son, the, Father, or the Son accomplished what the Father gave him to do, and the Holy Spirit applies it all. Now this is not the last time that Paul speaks about 
the Holy Spirit in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 5, or sorry, chapter 2, verse 29. And talking about a Jew, he says a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. You don't become a circumcised Jew by following the law. You become circumcised to God by the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 5, And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Verse 6 of chapter 7, Paul says, But we are now released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit. And not in the old way of the written code. So while we have just a few times in which the Holy Spirit is referred to earlier in the chapter, or in, earlier in the book of Romans, in chapter 8 we have nearly 20 times we're going to come across the Holy Spirit in his ministry in the life of a believer. And the Holy Spirit is the one who has made this change to make us in Christ. And again, we can enjoy this reality now. This is not something that we have to wait for. This is not something that we're longing for in the future. But we have this freedom without being under condemnation today. How can we say that with confidence? Because just as we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, and just as we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice, and we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. Our justification, the reconciliation we have with God, the peace that we experience right now is the same that provides us this confidence in which there is therefore now no condemnation. There has been a, a sentence pronounced upon us as free. We've been declared righteous in Jesus Christ. That means there's no condemnation. We have peace with God. That means we are therefore now not under condemnation. Just as we have peace, not at odds with, that is not having odds with God, and just as we have access to grace, that is our standing, and so importantly have been justified, not progressing to it, through it. We don't go through sacraments to try to somehow build our way up to being righteous. But we have been declared righteous because of the righteous work of Christ we know that there is now no condemnation even as we struggle. Even as we ask ourselves, who will deliver us from this body death? Even as we, why do I keep doing the things I don't want to do? Why do I don't do the things that I want to do? In the midst of all of that, Paul gives us a sure word. There's no condemnation. And there is no condemnation because the law of the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Again, those who are in Christ Jesus are the ones who have the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. He has set us free from the law of sin and of death. In Romans chapter 8, is going to be Paul's declaration of how the Holy Spirit is at work in our lives. How the Holy Spirit is 
uh, His transforming work sets us free to live righteously. The Holy Spirit's the one who enables us to be adopted as sons and daughters into the family of God. Is the Holy Spirit that helps us even through our suffering, awaiting glory. Is the Holy Spirit that's going to be actively involved in the sovereign work of glorifying our bodies. So as Richard and Tim follow through in chapter 8, let's get ready to enjoy the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our life. I'll close as we consider what we have waiting for us. It's a beautiful experience. Tim, last time, apologized himself all over, hoping that Bob wouldn't be offended by his illustration. Uh, this analogy that I'm about to give you, I can assure you, will make Tim's uh, analogy Pulitzer Prize winning uh, in comparison because this is so far short of what the point I'm wanting to make. I'm going to try. Uh, some of you are aware, hopefully all of, eventually all of you know, Amy and I are in the process of moving. We uh, got our house under contract, selling it, and we're going to, uh, we're planning on building a house over on the farm, which I grew up on, which is still going to be within driving distance of the church, so don't let that distract any of you. I'm, you're still going to have to listen to me preach every now and then. But we have a contract right now that our house is for sale and is being sold. All the attorneys are doing their stuff and everything, but you know what? It hadn't happened yet. That's <laughs> it, kind of a, a sense of anxiety just a little bit because you're thinking, well, even though everything's all written out there, something could happen and everything's just falling apart and then all of a sudden it's just, you know, not, it's worse than nothing because then you're kind of behind the eight ball and all this type of stuff. But we're confident that our house, Lord willing, next Wednesday will close on everything. And we're doing like any other... Uh, good couple do we're going to move in with my parents uh in their basement and uh but even though that might sound dreary to you all that's where i grew up amy didn't grow up there but it, it's not dreary to me but the the interesting thing about that is that i'm living their experience we're going to be right next to the property where my house or i'm sorry our house is going to be built We've got, we've got, we signed a contract for that. We've got a builder who is under contract to build a certain type of house. It's already got plans drawn out and everything. So, so we've got a plan. Don't have a house. We're not even out of our house. And when we move out of our house, we're still not going to be out of our house. We're going to be in a temporary house. But we're going to be so close that all we need to do is go outside the back door, go up on a hill, and guess what we're going to be able to look at? Construction people not doing anything. No, we're actually hopefully to hopefully we'll be able to look out over the what is now a cow pasture right now and hopefully see foundation being poured and seeing walls being put up, seeing a roof being put on, and then seeing it wrapped up and seeing people finish on the inside. We have no idea how long that's going to take. We have a relatively good idea how long that's going to take, but we really don't know because weather has a lot to do with that. The county government has a lot to do with that. Uh, there's all different types of things we can't control, and uh, that's hard. But you know what? Uh, there's been times when we've, we've had very frustrating days, and my feeble attempt to sort of help because I don't have any problems with anxiety. It's all Amy's problem. Um, but what I try...
try to do with Amy, I say, you know what, just picture yourself going out on your front porch, stepping down. There's going to be a chicken house out there, and you're going to be able to go and collect some eggs. And you're going to be able to look outside your kitchen window, and you're going to be able to see maybe a little bit of the, you know, the pond that's over on the property. And you'll be able to look down and just look at those trees. And uh, just It's not there yet. I mean, the pond's there. The chicken house isn't there yet. There's a cow pasture there, and a lot of evidence of the cows are there. But... But it's not there, but you know what? I got a contract. Humanly speaking, I'm, I'm good, right? I don't know what's going to happen, but I've got somebody who's promised to do something for me. And in the meantime, I've got a promise of being able to rest secure. It's not the perfect place, I can promise you. As much as I love my parents, and as much as I remember the years in which I spent in that basement growing up as a teenager, it's not where I want to end up. But it's sufficient until a day that's been promised to me that's much better. And all the while, there's not a sign over me that says, you know, you're homeless. That there's no sign saying that you're going to lose everything. Now, again, I realize in this world, this is where the analogy is so, so frail. I've got something to look forward to, but until that time, I, there's going to be a struggle. I, I, I mean, there's going to be, you know, hey, I'm living in a basement. My parents are living above us. Things are going to go as fast as I want them to. But you know what? In this world, you struggle, right? I don't know when you came to know Christ as your Savior. I don't know how long you've been waiting for the sure word of prophecy to come true. I don't know what you faced. I don't know how many times you struggled and you said, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death waiting? I don't know what your life is like. We don't know how long it takes for us to get from here to glory. We don't. We have a relatively good amount of time. You realize if you go past 100 years, you're really, really close. But you don't know. There's somebody that's my age that just passed away last week. There's people younger than me. That the young boy that's just did a truck or treat thing. I mean, he he's seven years old. He, he's in eternity now. We don't know how long it takes to get from here to there. We don't know what we're going to struggle with from here to there. But for those of us who are in Christ, we know that there is therefore now no condemnation. I know what I'm not going to face. I know what isn't my future. And it has nothing to do with how good I am. It has nothing to do with what I've done. It has everything to do with Jesus Christ and Him alone. That gives me joy. That gives me a sense of excitement reading chapter 8 of Romans. In another part of Scripture, that helps me when I struggle. Waiting. You know, again, I don't want to get too far ahead in Romans chapter 8 or anywhere else in the Scripture, but you know, Jesus said, let your, not your heart, what? Don't let it be trouble. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In other words, be in Christ. In my Father's place, what? 
there are many dwelling places. As a matter of fact, I'm going to go and build one just for you. I'm going to give you a home forever. If it were not true, I would have told you. So don't be anxious. And there's no greater word to remedy anxiety that there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Father, thank you that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Father, forgive me for not being adequate to express just the wonderful nature of this truth. But I'll thank you, Lord, that it's not up to me, that it's not up to me to be sufficient, that your word is so clear. Your Holy Spirit is so powerful to give us these words of truth that is an anchor for our souls, even when we struggle with the indwelling sin that we continue to contend with until that day of glory when we see Jesus Christ. Father, help us to enjoy the grace that makes this possible until we see Jesus Christ. And we ask in Jesus' name.